everybody. Thanks for being here. Greggy, thank you so much for being here today, sir. That's my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for those of y'all that don't know, I asked Gregory to come on the channel because I've seen some of his work in other places. Uh, he is a well-known art collector. And what has, I guess, intrigued me is that you speak specifically about how to build a collection, what it means to build a collection. And I think that there's a lot of overlap, <laughs> whether people realize it or not, in the art world and uh, the sports card world and, and collection building in general, I guess. Right. And uh, I guess as we get started here, you know, would you... You know, kind of walk us through what it is you collect and, and why it is you collect it? Right. Okay. Well, I specialize in contemporary realism. Um, and in general, that means people who make pictures of the natural world and they're painting generally, generally painting with their hands or sketching with their hands. Um, although I branch out a little bit, um, I've got some photography there, some computer generated art, but normally it's representative of um, the natural world that you see. So it's not surrealistic, um, it's more or less traditional, but one rule is that um, the person who is the artist always has lived at the time that I've been on this earth, right? So our but our times being alive have overlapped. So the 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 one work I have one work that was created before I was born, but the guy lived you know well until like the seventies or eighties, whatever. So he counts because we're both here at the same time. <laughs> um, so no, it's contemporary. I I like to um, support living artists, and I like to get to know them in their and their. Um, their world and support them in their careers. So that's important to me in my collection. Um, oh, you can see a couple of examples behind them. And I've got very traditional work. Um, you can see a still life painting right over my head, um, which I bought in Latvia, as a matter of fact, um, taking advantage of the fact that a painting of that quality costs a lot less in Latvia than it would <laughs> on Madison Avenue in New York. Um, and then the other pieces, well, um, they're all, those are, well, actually there's a South African artist underneath the Latvian, and then over in this direction, it's an American, and I have the sides American, the other pieces are all American, but I travel, whenever I travel, I go checking out the galleries and my personal connections and see what I can find when I'm there, that's always a good time. Oh, we're certainly going to ask you more questions about that as we keep going here, but I think they're probably going to come up naturally and because okay. uh, I just find it interesting what you've collected. And I'm, I'm going to talk about, I'm going to quote probably a few times, um, you know, we'll call it a lecture that you gave uh, to Columbia. It's available on YouTube. I think it was great. Uh, and, and in that, you quoted the dictionary. You said, what what is a collection? And you said, it's a group of objects or an amount of material accumulated in one location. And then this part you called out, especially for some purpose or as a result of some process. And you right. talked about your collection. How's that process or purpose, how's it come about? You know, For you, how did it come about? Well, let, let me step back a little bit. I mean, if a, for me, well, there's at least two different kinds of collectors. Well, maybe, maybe we can go so far and say three, but there are people who speculate, okay? Who don't care what they're collecting. They're looking at 
art as an investment, a way to flip it, you know, make some fast money. I'm not about that at all. I've never sold anything that I've ever bought. Um, there are other types of collectors who are interesting, interested in specific types of history, sociology. They want to have artifacts that are going to represent a time in history or mm -hmm. um, certain um, ethnicity or something like that. I'm not about that. My collection is all about a certain type of, of aesthetics. Um, and it started when um, so I used to be an art student. I went to a place called the High School of Music and Art. Now it's called the Fiorello LaGuardia High School of Art and something or other, Performing Arts. I don't know, it's at Lincoln Center now. They, they merge with the Performing Arts School, which is, if you've seen the movie Fame or heard of it, yeah, sure. To be in two different buildings, they merged them together there at Lincoln Center. Anyway, that's where I went. Uh, and I studied art for three years there. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, the challenge of seeing something in front of you and representing that with your hand in a way that was skillful and pleasing and meaningful, that was the goal in painting. Mm -hmm. However, it was not the trendy thing, and it was not the thing that was going to make you rich and get you headlines and papers because you've done some outrageous thing, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and when I was looking at the artwork around me that was getting all the news, it was conceptualism, it was pop art, it was all of this stuff which, to me, okay, it's interesting to see it in a museum or to read about it, um, but I want to be with it, you know? I mean, I, I felt I was getting what there was to be gotten out of it in the five or 10 minutes that it takes to walk past it in the museum. Um, and realizing this, I said to myself at the tender age of around 17 or 18 years old, <laughs> if I'm going to be really popular, I got to do this stuff that I'm not interested in. I may as well be making shoes, you know? So I just left it. I went on and did other things in my life. But then later, so I was in my, what, early 30s, late 30s, somewhere in my 30s. Um, I happened to be on a trip in France. I was with a friend in Paris. and We had a reservation at a restaurant for like 8.30 or something. We showed up on time and they said, oh, come back in 45 minutes. So we had to cool our heels for 45 minutes. We decided to take a walk. And we walked through this um, very beautiful plaza called Place des Vosges, which has a covered walkway around the side. And it was raining, so that was the perfect place to be. And we just happened by a gallery, a new art gallery, that was showing work that had just been painted by someone who was painting on a skill level that I had never seen outside of a museum. And it blew me away. I really thought that to paint with that type of skill, these still life paintings, mm -hmm. I thought it was evaporated, it was gone like, you know, ocean liners or something, you know, it was just <laughs> completely evaporated. But here was someone who obviously had dedicated his life to painting in that manner, 
Although he knew farewell, farewell, he was never going to be the next Warhol, you know, right. or the next Jeff Koons. He just went ahead doing what meant something to him. So I had a great deal of respect for him. And I was totally amazed by this artwork. And I never bought a painting in a gallery in my life. And here I was in a foreign country trying to figure out, you know, can I afford this? Can I get it out of the country? I didn't know anything. But anyway, I looked it all up. I managed to get it. I took it from there. I, okay, my next stop on that trip was in Munich, I think it was. And I went to the Alta Pinacotech. And in my mind, I'm comparing this painting that I just bought with these pictures on the wall. Mm-hmm. It is just as good. You know, came home and I put the picture up on my wall. And I found myself like coming home after work and turning on the TV And instead of looking at the TV, I was sitting there looking at the painting. So this like really meant something to me. Uh, And I knew I was really getting something undefinable out of it. And I actually was also was working as a lawyer all day and being analytical. But this was something which was more emotional. Sure. Yeah. So I thought if they're doing this in France, maybe they're doing it in America, too. Mm-hmm. So I just started doing a whole bunch of research. I bought every art magazine they had at Barnes and Noble. Um, started reading up on all the galleries in town. You know, we have a lot of art galleries in New York. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I started imagine, taking yeah. rounds and seeing who was there and who was doing what. And I think probably within the next six months, I I found someone who I really admired and thought he was doing work on a comparable level. And I got something by him. And you know what? I just kept going. And after that, I was going to um, openings and getting to know the dealers and getting to know the artists and visiting their studios. And um, after I got a whole bunch of work, I started, I had my own um, website. And at one point, a, a museum, the oldest contemporary art museum there in um, Ridgefield, Connecticut, got in touch with me because they wanted to borrow one of my works for a show that they were having. Um, and I said, well, sure, you know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, please. And then ultimately, they asked me if I would talk about being a collector and what that was like. And I've been doing it for 10 years. And so I'm sitting up there on, you know, on a, on a panel and the words are just tumbling out of my mouth. And I thought, wow, I, I actually know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. So then I was like up and running and then I was like writing criticism and um, appearing at art fairs and all of this stuff. So um, this me- is, that's how I got into it. And um, the idea that something is not historical that is done, that is reflecting the contemporary world that we're living in. Um, so that you, ha- you can identify with it in a very immediate way. That's important to me. That the artist is alive is important to me because I want to know that the money that I'm paying is helping to create more of this art. Uh, that's, a, um, that's a good point. And... Um, what else can I say about it? It's uh, a lot, but obviously it's going to be something I can afford. Uh, but that was, you know, that was another very interesting thing to discover. Um, 
and that is there's no intrinsic value to any work of art. It's only who's out there who likes it and how much can they pay. It's it's, it's something that I mean it is uh we face in the card world too, you know. I mean, a, a lot of art in, in cards, you know, your values kind of derive the same way where it's just kind of what someone's willing to pay. You know, that's exactly. it. There's no necessarily intrinsic value. Nothing. And, yeah. Because I, you know, I can take this notepad and sell it to you for $50,000 if I had the right words to, 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 to sell it with. Or if I had two people with the $50,000 to buy it, you know. Right. Because people have bought blank canvases for huge amounts of money. So there is absolutely no intrinsic value to any artwork. It's all what does it mean to you and someone else who's got the money who wants to buy it, right? That's going to determine the value. And the more people out there who want it, you know, the broader the base you have of people willing to cough up the money, yeah. you know, the more stable the value is. But that doesn't mean it's it couldn't be a million dollars today and you know ten thousand dollars twenty years from now, you know. Was was that something you had to wrestle with as you went through your collection or still going through your collection journey? I mean, was there a point where you're like, "There's no value in this. Why am I doing this?" Or did you just <laughs> no? Because the value that I got was living with the art. The value that I got was the connection mm-hmm. with the artists, many of whom I've now I've known now for decades. And I've been seeing their careers flourish. I've been helping them. I've actually managed to get two artists into the collection at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, for example. And that's a nice leg up to be giving to an artist. I've been able to be in the position of being a curator for foundations giving awards to artists. I'm now on um, a, a trust, I'm a trustee of a, of a foundation that runs an artist community in in Italy, um, I'm you know, I'm getting value from from the goodwill that comes from collecting, as well as living with the work and feeling great when I come home. You know that I have these experiences, these mementos, the mementos of traveling, of being with people. Mm-hmm. You know, having all that is what means something to me. Every now and again, I look to see whether, you know, what the street value is of a work, right? So I don't have any intention of selling stuff and I only have bought things that I knew I could afford at the time with the money that I had saved. Mm -hmm. I didn't, all right, well, once or twice, maybe I paid for something over time, like over six months or something like that. Sure. But, I never went to a bank and got a loan, right? I never yeah, was yeah, yeah. compromised for getting it. It was just, instead of taking a ski trip, I'm going to take this money and buy a drawing, you know? Right. So it was all free and clear money. So I don't need to sell any of this stuff. Um, <clears throat> but every now and again, I, tra- I track and see how someone's doing. And sometimes it's really great news. <laughs> other, not, other times it's not, but you know what? I don't care. It's it's really a good lesson. I mean, in the sports cards world, we see there is very much a flip mentality. You talked about the investing mentality, mm-hmm. you know, that is you know, some people have in the art world where they buy to invest. There's a lot of flipping 
uh, with sports cards because people think that, you know, I can buy this guy and then he's going to play well over the course of a season. I'll be able to sell him. Right. And you you kind of see a lot of, especially younger people, newer to, we call it the hobby, the sports card world. We call it the hobby. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of newer people and younger people to the hobby. They'll, they'll take out loans right? and, and they'll go into debt to do this. And it's like, uh-huh. ah, really would not recommend doing that. And it seems like, you know, you've stayed the free and clear path, like you said, and it's, it's been rewarding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, um, you know, there's some there's a certain class of people who have so much money that they really don't know what to do with it or they've gotten a bunch of money and they want to park it someplace. Where they're sure that in 10, 15 years, even six months later, they're going to be able to sell it and have that money even though the mm-hmm. price of real estate may go down or the price of gold may go down, they're going to diversify. They're going to have this money. And they will spend huge amounts on paintings that they never see. They, they put them into warehouses, especially places like Switzerland, where there's like this free no tax zone. And you just, you know, you buy it from a dealer. It goes into a crate. Mm-hmm. He ships it to, um gestad or to i don't know some other swiss city and it's in a warehouse there it never comes out of the box you know that's what those people are doing i'm not like (laughs) that i'm just not about the money i'm about the artwork we we have it in the sports cards world too people buy cards and they go into what's called most of most um dealers that offer this it's called a vault and they Mm -hmm. just hold the card for you and at some point you know, you're happy with the price that it is and, and you sell it and move off of it. You know, it's, I guess, a similar well, price. Well, let me tell you what, I'm just, I'm just curious, what kind of money are we talking about? Are we talking about hundreds of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars? I would guess that the average person in sports cars right now has tens of thousands of dollars invest, invested or a sunk. Um, you mean in a, in a collection, but what about an individual card? I mean, they range, I mean, I would say the average, you know, sale price of a card is somewhere around a thousand dollars right now. Okay. Um, average, average isn't. It's not really fair because there's so many low end stuff happening under twenty bucks. Like that's all right. day, you know. But I would say, you know, you know, a lot of there's a lot of transactions around a thousand. And I mean, right now the hobbies, you know, card collecting seems such a surge. We're seeing record sales across the board. I think six million. I think is the record sale right now for a single card. Oh wow! Something like that. I don't okay. know. So. Yeah, with COVID. Was, was that Babe Ruth signed and his fingerprints <laughs> on it or something? Or what? People are going to get mad at me because I don't know. It's it's either, I think, Mickey Mantle, his rookie card from 1952, uh-huh. which you know kind of speaks to the Americana and the history right. of it. But also LeBron James has a card that I know that sold up north of, I think, $4 million, And so is right. Luka Doncic. And that's really more, I mean, Luka Doncic, current modern-day player, selling for what, you know, the best cards in, in the history of the, uh, you know, the hobby is selling for just kind of speaks to, I don't want to say infected, but how infected the hobby is with the, with the investing and flipping mentality. There's a lot right. of hype built into the, the, the hobby right now. Right. But, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people who just really have an emotional bond to these cards and they just oh, want yeah. them to happen. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, people, we, yeah. go ahead, go ahead. Do people like buy every card there is for every rookie at like $5 and just hope that one breaks through in 10 years or something like that? 
Yeah, I'm sure it's no different than an artist. We call it prospecting when someone, yeah, they just they just buy a ton of cards for that player, hoping that in the next you know five to seven years they really do well, and then that card mm -hmm. goes up. I'm mm -hmm. sure. I'm I would guess. I I'm just assuming people do that for artists. You know, an unknown artist buy some of his stuff and hope it goes up over time. I don't know. Some people do, but you know what? It's really hard to figure out. I mean, it's just there's so many artists out there, and then they're producing these artworks that you got to put someplace you know yeah and trying to predict who's going to be the next you know jeff coons or someone it's it's not easy to do it really isn't but there was let's see i was working on i was working with the museum at one point and they would go around they would have like a three thousand dollar limit and they would go around to all the contemporary art places and they buy you know, X number of works at $3,000 or less, hoping that 10 or 15 years from now, someone will really break through. And if they do, then that's gonna be worth more than the combined lot of the $3,000 works that a lot of them are junk now, but you know, they're, they're yeah. just, you know, hedging their bets. Yeah, so let me ask you this, because it reminds me of something we see in the sports cards world. Do are there platforms or are there abilities out there to buy into a fraction of a painting? Like yes. you share the ownership. Yes. Yes. What do you think about that? How's that received in the art world? Again, these I, I, I would like to try to understand who is doing this. So there are people who want to have a Picasso, right? Mm -hmm. And they can only afford 20% of it. So they'll go into a partnership with four other people and they'll share the Picasso one year, you know, one out of five years. There are people who do that. And there are other people who are doing it only because of the financial part of it, right? right. They want to have their monies someplace that they feel is relatively safe and they don't mm -hmm. want to invest in the market or whatever. And they're just doing it as a pure financial thing. I... You know, I just wouldn't do that. I just think it's too dicey. I just, where is the picture? How's it insured? You know, what if I want to get my money out? I can't get my money out. I just, it's, it's not worth it for me. It's just, it, yeah. why? I mean, there's too yeah. many other options. Yeah, that started up, I think, this year, last year in sports cards. And there's a lot of people, you know, they rush to put money into it. And a lot of people kind of, you know, I'd be more well, you're also talking time. about a, a fair amount of money because in order to mm -hmm. paper it properly, you're going to need to have a competent lawyer draft up a document, right? And that's already increasing your cost by an amount I don't feel like paying. You know? <laughs> let, let me ask you this. You said, I think if I heard right before, you said you had over 250 pieces of art. Is that correct? Somewhere between 250 and 300. You also said you never sold one. Now, how in the world well, have you... Uh, have you collected all these and not moved off of one, not been so upset with one? You say, I, I got to get off. Okay. Well, you know what? When I initially started, um, I didn't really know what direction I wanted to go in. Mm -hmm. And at one point, I bought at auction. A, a cell from a Disney movie, Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I got it at an auction. I think it was Christie's. 
in Los Angeles. I love that movie. Beauty and the Beast is one of my all-time favorite pictures. It also was at a time when they were transitioning from hand-painted to digital um, creation of, of, of cartoons. So it was the last time you were ever going to have anything that was originally hand-painted. So I had it, was happy with it, framed it and all that. Um, but then it was only a few years later that I decided I just wanted to go for naturalistic, actual, traditional painting, and it wasn't really fitting in anymore. So I sold that. And you know what? From a financial standpoint, if I'd held it for 20 years, I would have made a killing, mm -hmm. but I just wanted out of it, you know? And instead, I bought two oil paintings. Uh, from the guy who I originally got the first piece in France. And I'm, you know, oh, wow. very, very happy with that. Although the street value of that, I don't think has improved just a, even a dime. But still, when I come home, it's more the aesthetic that I was going to. Now, I say I've never sold a painting, but I didn't really count that as a painting. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> and Other than that, I have not sold anything. It seems it just seems so difficult I, as we go through again, everybody, I'll link it below the your lecture at Columbia. You know, you talked about some of the common mistakes. I'm skipping ahead a little bit here, but mm -hmm. you talked about displeased with acquisition. I think that's something right. that we see a lot in this hobby, the card hobby. And right. so it's crazy to me that you could have bought that many pieces and not really have felt that strongly enough to move off one of them. You know, that's I mean, really amazing. Oh, no, no, I feel you know, I like them all. I mean, I have a I have a connection. I get a certain feeling from all of them. Now, look, if somebody came and said, look, I'll pay off your mortgage. Just give me this picture. I'm, I'm not stupid, right? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, but that hasn't happened. Uh, I mean, you know, one day it could. It, it hasn't happened yet. Not um, yet. But, now, uh, in, you, with so many pieces, and we see some up on the wall there, how many do you have displayed in your house? And for the ones that aren't, you know, are they in storage? You know, how do you keep, you know, right. this much art? Well, I'll tell you, so this is this is how it happened. When I started collecting, <clears throat> I was in a very, very small walk-up apartment um, off of Central Park in Manhattan. So it's a great neighborhood uh, with all sorts of really great things, lovely neighbors, um, great transportation, beautiful block, could hear mm -hmm. birds in the in the morning. It was lovely, but it was tiny. Uh, but it was something called rent stabilized. It was, um, it, there's a law in New York that if you're in a certain type of rental, the rent can only go up a certain amount mm -hmm. every year. So the longer you stay in a place like that, actually the cheaper it gets relative to the market. And I've been there for many, many years. So I had basically like extra money, right? So I, I felt, okay, I can either buy an apartment and have a mortgage and be like everybody else, or I can go and, you know, stay in this little tiny apartment, travel wherever I want to, and buy art. And the whole thing was working out just great. Um, and I could also get as much as I wanted because I would think sometime in the future, I'll have an apartment and I'll have a place to put all this stuff, but meanwhile, I'm just collecting, right? Sure, yeah. So... Then 10 years ago, I actually got an apartment 
and I knew what I could put up and what I could not. And there wasn't going to be any more space. Mm -hmm. So anything that wasn't up on the wall had to be in storage or in a portfolio or something like that. Um, and it, so it's limited me and I'm not collecting the way I used to. Um, but also there was a certain juncture when I thought, um, I mean, in order for me to share things that people coming by, they can't see it on the wall, but I had this website that I made and um, that was a way of buying something that wasn't actually hanging, but I could still share it and talk about it with people. And it was great having a website. And this went back 20 years ago. You know, I could go to Europe or Africa and bring up that website and talk about my collection with whomever I wanted to. Oh, yeah. Great. So that was a way to keep on going, even though I didn't have any space. Um, but now I've got, you know, I actually um, am I like on the verge of, re of retiring. And the job that I had most recently um, ended just before, well, just after the lockdown, stuff I used to have in my office now is in a, in a storage bin. It's, <laughs> it, it is a little bit absurd. I mean, there's a lot of stuff locked up in stores that I don't see. Um, when I moved into this current apartment and hung, I, I don't know, I think it maybe have like 80 things hanging up now. Mm -hmm. It took four days to hang them. Oh my goodness. Have it all organized. And, you know, I mean, and I thought, okay, well, I'll switch these things in and out all the time. Well, I've never switched anything. Out. I was, I was going to ask you, do you it, rotate it's a lot of no. work? Just that 80, huh? That's it. Well, and then I got something recently. Um, Scott Fraser is an artist whom I've admired now for 30 years. Um, I bought him when he was just starting in galleries in New York. And he's had a very solid, very consistent career over all of that time. And I know him very well. And I think he had something in a show. Um, that hadn't sold and he made a special offer to me and i couldn't turn it down so i got this picture and um i honestly didn't have any place to hang it so now it's like on a on a desk laying on top of another piece that i had <laughs> and I, I just can't bring myself to change anything well anyway look that's my own little neuroses mm -hmm. um, ultimately i'll do something i don't, I, I just don't know but Fair Instead enough. of getting 10 things a year, now I'm down to getting like one. Well, that's kind of interesting. I guess that kind of leads me to um, when, when you talk about what you're collecting and the quality of it, you know, for you, how does quality play a role in selecting a piece? And, you know, what defines quality to you? And it, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess there are different qualities that some people look for in art in painting and drawing in particular mm -hmm. um the primary motivator for me is skill in painting all right so if someone's trying to paint a fork it better look like a fork right um if someone's painting a person i better feel the soul of that person when i'm looking at that portrait i want to have i want to know exactly who I'm with, exactly what they're thinking about, 
that's what a really great artwork can do. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to, say, a still life painting, <clears throat> I think still lives are one of the most difficult things an artist can do because you're painting apples and pears and china bowls and things that have been painted for hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And if you can come up with your own way of doing it that has your stamp on it, nobody else can do it, that is a huge accomplishment. So if someone can do that in a manner that, you know, that resonates with me, mm -hmm. I'm that person. You know what? And if I can't buy the thing, I'll bring somebody else around who's got more money than I've got and let them buy the thing. <laughs> hey, that's a good thing to do. And yeah, I mean, that's pretty interesting. I actually went and looked at your, your website. Well, I think I looked at your website. <laughs> I, I saw some of the paintings there and I saw a lot of the, I guess, uh, people portraits, I don't know, their face. And that was, you know, you notice the realism there. And it's, I honestly, it's amazing that people can even paint that good or draw that good or etch that good, whatever it is, you know, it's. Uh, yeah, I mean, having spent three years studying art, I, I have a very sort of um, vivid idea of what it takes to be able to do something very, very fine. Um, one of the artists I have, his name is Lars Newberg. He is Swedish. Um, and I was in a trip to Sweden and I went to their graphic arts museum and saw what he was doing in um, dry point. So dry point is a technique where you take, like a, it's called a stylus, it's like a, a, like a pin that you scratch onto a, onto a copper surface with. <clears throat> you can't make any mistakes. And with etching, you can cover over mistakes you, with wax or whatever, I don't know what it is, how you do, but you can sort of make different versions of things. You can't do that with dry point. And this work was almost photographic. And it just blew me away. And etchings and graphics, that's not basically the thing that I normally go for, but I had to have one of these things. So, yeah. So I got that. And actually, he's one of the two artists I got into the Metropolitan Museum's collection. Oh, wow. Ultimately. Man, um, that's amazing. Right. Um, other people, listen, other people want to have whatever is new, whatever is cutting edge, whatever represents the year 2021 mm -hmm. in the art scene. Um, and maybe they're not interested in, you know, tradition. Maybe they don't, maybe they, maybe they just know what their dealers tell them, you know, but right. they're not looking at it the way I'm looking at it. Well, it's fine for them if that's what they want. Um, there's this very, very famous couple um, named Vogels, the Vogels. They, they were the people who like cutting edge stuff. Now, I think it's Herb. He worked for the post office and his wife worked for, actually as a librarian. And they lived in <laughs> one of these, it's not even rent stabilized, it's like a rent controlled statement, uh, apartment even cheaper than what I had. They had no children and they just kept buying stuff, buying stuff, buying stuff, buying stuff. Something was under their bed, it was behind their sofas, it was like 
all hanging from the ceiling was everything. But what they liked was whatever was new. So they were getting conceptualism and minimalism and pop art and all these things before anybody else was getting them. They would get to know the artists and um, they would support the artists. And look, you could get something for $20 from somebody. And, and But they had their pulse on what was going on. And uh, ultimately they gave their, you know, the bulk of their collection to the National Gallery in Washington um, for a very significant amount of money and a pension and all that. And uh, oh, then they wow. started collecting again. Um, so that was valid and that was what they wanted. But you know, but that's not me. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to have the Met Museum when I walk into walk in through my door. You know, I want something to me that seems like almost impossible that you can walk into your apartment and have works of that quality, you know, that you're living with. <laughs> you know, yeah. and you're not a baron or a, a duke or something. You're just Gregory, you know. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, with with sports cards, they only go back to 1870, 1860, something like that. Mm -hmm. So to think that you know you go to a museum and you can see some some work that's been celebrated for 500 years, 300 mm -hmm. years, and mm -hmm. then you know you can out in the streets of France find people putting together you know high quality stuff you know that that matches. Um, I don't want to say to the craftsmanship, but you know, close enough. That's what you're saying, right? It no, I think amazing. it's exactly that. Yeah, it's that's so why. But you know, the thing is, fashion. I mean, art, popularity, and art is just all fashion, and it's what people, or I say, a cohort of people. It's a just. It's always just a group of people decide they want at that time. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yep. So. Um, here, this is an interesting lesson that I learned. Um, some years ago, say 20 years ago, I was with some collectors and um, someone was trying to interest me in like African art, mm -hmm. uh, masks, little statues, that type of thing. Starting in, I think it was around like the 1920s, people used from America and Europe started going into Africa and coming back with these things. As a matter of fact, you know, Picasso was influenced by them, right? So the, this whole genre of art collecting was very sought, sought after and um, very pricey, you know, um, rare and pricey and collected by a very devoted group of people, right? Okay. But that group of people were all of a certain generation. And then ultimately what happens? They start to die, right? Yeah. So whereas there may have been, let's say 5,000 people who liked this, it turned out then it was 2,000 people, then it's like 1,000 people and they hadn't communicated their love and interest in this type of work to their kids. The kids were not interested. So, the value went down, 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 down. Look, it's still great art, right? Mm -hmm. It's great yeah. tribal art, it's great African art, but it's just the people who want to spend $20,000 for it are not there anymore. So it was pitched to me as being a bargain. Well, I mean, it was compared to what it had been 30 years before. Yeah. This wasn't my thing. 
you know. That was, was um, it? Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, but that's the same with every kind of every kind of art. I mean, if you mm -hmm. look at who was really popular in France in the in the um 19th century, it wasn't the impressionists, you know. They mm -hmm. were just bohemians doing some crazy stuff. The people who were getting the high prices, they were all acknowledged by the French Academy. It was Bouguereau and these people. But then 50 years later, nobody wants a Bouguereau. You can't sell it. But what do they want? They want Impressionism. <laughs> so a couple of great points here. Let's just talk about the fashion item first, and then I want to circle back to what you're talking about them. Uh, impressing upon the significance of the mask and the, the art to their kids. Let's I don't want to forget that. Mm -hmm. But talking about like the fashion and how things come in and out of fashion, mm -hmm. what's the kind of time frame on that stuff? I mean, is it is it is it insanely fast now? I feel like with the internet, a lot of things have sped up in their cycles. You know, do you see the six month cycles or do we still see 30, 40, 50 year cycles in, in art? Right. It, it depends on the area of art that you're looking at. Some things become very well established, mm -hmm. um, blue chip type of stuff. I mean, I don't believe that Picasso is going to go out of fashion in your lifetime or mine. It's been a very, very slow and steady progression. And he's in every great every great museum, everywhere. I mean, I don't think that his name is going to go down. I mean, he's taught in school, which kind of to your earlier point, you know, it right. helps to teach the kids, you know, you know, Picasso, you know, you just know it. Right. Um, but in the contemporary world, it is really, if you ask me, it's really ugly mm -hmm. because what tends to happen is that an artist will go to an art school, they'll get an MFA, Master's Fine Arts, they start exhibiting down in the Lower East Side or whatever, um, they will find a dealer who's connected to a lot of people with a lot of money who don't know what to do with it. Um, and they're going to speculate that this person is going to be hot. Okay, fine. So the person is mid to late 20s and people start piling on. Mm -hmm. And then the work goes up for a bit, it goes up a little bit more. If they become popular, it may skyrocket. By time they turn 40, some other new thing has come along and no one wants their stuff anymore. And it's devastating. It's devastating to them because that's the way this contemporary scene goes. Mm, and let yeah. me tell you, I've seen it happen head on with people who I supported when they got out of school yeah. and thought that they were really great. And, you know, again, I'm doing, I'm looking for traditional kind of stuff. It's never going to be millions of dollars for their artworks, but it may go up to some tens of thousands of dollars. And then, you know, they turn 40 and they're old. Mm. Oh, it's really just insane to see. Um, without naming any names, um, a very gifted artist who I found when this person was between college and 
grad school, before her MFA. Um, I just loved her. She's got a you know group of people who really love her. Her artwork. I mean, I think quite honestly that her artwork sells consistently at very reasonable prices. I mean, she's mm-hmm. never really skyrocketed. Rocketed. But then again, you don't lose a lot. I mean, you don't put a lot in, you don't lose a lot. So you get something that's solid. I'm living with it. I'm happy with it. I actually don't even know what she's selling for these days, but she's got a very loyal following, okay? However, this person, in order to you know have a steady living, became an art teacher. <clears throat> And she was teaching this, you know, traditional work. I mean, it had her her spin on it, but it was still, you know, painting with an oil brush. Mm-hmm. And she hit 40, 45. The school didn't want her anymore because she was old. My goodness. So the person has a struggle to hold on to her job because she's not the flavor of the month anymore as a teacher. Oh, so you the school, I didn't fully understand. You're saying the school didn't want her because she wasn't as popular an artist at that because point. She, yeah, because she wasn't the new thing. Oh, my goodness. That's crazy. It's a, it is a really rough life, which is why I feel if I can still go out and and support a person by giving them X number of dollars and show them appreciation of what they're doing for this work, which I think it's difficult to do, which is enriching and reflective of the actual world and documenting what's going on in this world instead of, you know, a string hanging from the ceiling mm-hmm. or, you know, a bucket of painting splashed up on a wall. You know, anyone can do it. I just, you know, you want to convince yourself that that's valuable? You know, that's great for people who like it. You know, but I want to be there for the person who actually takes the time and learns the skill and has a sort of, you know, emotional connection to the real world that I've got. So I, I remember I was somewhere with my wife and she, she, she likes art. And not that I dislike it, but she has knowledge of it. I should say, and we were at a museum and I remember we saw some, I'll call it a painting. It was a big white canvas just with a red dot painted, almost like, almost like wax, you know, there was a decent amount of texture. And I remember they said that sold for like $2 million. I'm like, $2 million. I'm like, I think I could do that. You know, it's crazy how, like you're saying, like people just decide that's what we're going to throw money at. Exactly. Exactly. And, And then for these young folks, like you were just saying, so, I mean, are you kind are you saying that you know, they, they come out of school or and they kind of start their career and then people, I, you know, are looking at them and say, hey, this person's pretty cool. They're different. They're unique. You know, they're starting their career. And then it seems like almost regardless of how well they actually, I guess, perform as an artist over the next 15 years, they're at 15 years later, they're going to get tossed out and they're going to, you know, people are going to be looking for the next one. That is a very common trajectory. And unfortunately, well, look, artists, I'll tell you something about artists. They don't know business to save their lives. I mean, there are a handful of people I've known. You could count on the fingers of one hand who are really great artists and really great businessmen. The rest are disasters at business. So a lot of these young people 
They think they're going to be popular for the rest of their lives. Mm -hmm. And they're not necessarily going to be. I mean, it could happen. <laughs> and it's, it's not going to happen. So it's, it's really sad to see. And it's just a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, and my hat's off to anybody who will, you know, devote themselves to that. Yeah, I mean, I know my brain would not let me do that. Just to think that I'm going to do this and hopefully someone pays me money. My brain would not. <laughs> you know, that's not that's not how this works. We're going to do right. a job. We're going to get paid. You know, that's. But you're in a different type of field. Yeah, so I was going to say, you, the, the work that you get is not, um, is not created by individuals. It's created by companies. Right. Yeah, that's the, it's really interesting. So as you've talked through this, mm -hmm. I'm making parallels in my mind, and I know mm -hmm. the people listening are going to be thinking the same. It, you have these companies that make cards, whereas, you know, you have a, a variety of, of artists. It's independent where it's really not. It, there's really just one company per sport, more or less. There's a little bit of exception, mm -hmm. but basically one company per sport. But really, when I think you say artist, I think that's almost more um, equivalent to player in the in the in the uh, sports card world. Like mm -hmm. you like, you know, artists A, B and C. Well, I like player A, B and C. You know, it's right. that to me is a little bit more equivalent. But then you're still stuck to the whims of whatever the, the big corporation decided to do as far as card design and look and feel and, what, right. and how the cards appear to. I mean, cards that they issue. I mean, when you get a card, are you going to think there's 500 more people who have it? 5,000, 50,000? How do you, how do you know what you've got? <laughs> that is a question we are struggling with right now, sir. We think, you know, I mean, as far back as a couple of years ago, before the hobby car, cars blew up with COVID, people went home, they sat mm -hmm. at home, they're like, mm -hmm. what do I do? There's no sports. Right. Uh -huh. people, it was a way to gamble. Was hot, And then people grew up with it. it. It was nostalgic. It was everything. So three years ago, hobby hadn't blown up yet. Print runs of a card, you know, a rookie card that sought after, who knows, maybe 15,000. I don't know. It, it may be more than that. I don't know. But 15,000 cards. Yeah, 15,000. Well, I'm going to ask you, wait, this is something I'd like to know. When I was a kid, you would get, you would buy bubble gum and you would get the card with the bubble gum. How do they sell them now? Oh, it's same thing. No bubble gum. <laughs> it's just a pack, usually 10 cards, whatever. I Okay. And generally speaking, I mean, I mean, frankly, they're all worthless now, but you know, for sure, if you get 10 cards in the pack, nine of them won't be good. I mean, literally worth less than a nickel. And right. then one of them, you know, if you're lucky, is worth 20 bucks. You know? mm -hmm. But uh, but now, you I know, mean. That's another thing that I think is very interesting when it comes to collecting. No matter how much money you've got, there's going to be something for you to focus on as a collector. You know, yes. it can be, again, it can be Michelangelo's and Picasso's if you're a zillionaire or it can be a you know a five dollar card or you know stamps or whatever you know mm -hmm. if you're you know um not as wealthy but you can still just get into it you know you can still really find joy in it and find people find um camaraderie with other people who are into the same thing yeah absolutely i think i don't know if you said this or if i read this somewhere but i was reading about a guy who built his art his art collection 
I've done a lot of reading about art collecting because that's the only literature I could find on how to build a collection. It's all about mm -hmm. art. Right. And this individual, his, his whole collection was that, I guess he went around and bought them like at garage sales or Goodwills or stuff like that. And so, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of it, he's got this collection and it's probably unique and probably not, you know, worth a lot of money, but it was very, it was very concentrated and it was one specific thing and he was happy with it. He's just like, yeah, that's, it's so neat how you can really build a collection out of anything. It's just a matter of kind of finding that focus, that passion that, that you. Exactly. Yeah. No, I find that that really is important to have an idea that you're trying to express through the collection. Mm -hmm. So for me, as I said, is you know realistic art of my own lifetime, and it's worldwide, you know. Um, but other people may just want to collect every kind of six-inch screw that's ever been made, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going to be fascinating, right? You yeah. know, here's one that's 2,000 years old. Here's one that's five years old. Here's one of copper. Here's one of wood. I mean, you know, if you can dig into a subject by collecting art, artifacts that represent it, I always find that that's going to be interesting. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. And especially like just the six-inch screw example, it's like, because then it tells a story. You know, you tell exactly. a story. And even as someone who doesn't, who's never screwed anything, you know, into a wall in their life. You know, that's still right. kind of interesting to see the progression of that throughout time. Exactly. Like here is a screw from 1920 when they were using iron, they hadn't come up with steel yet or, you know, or here's mm -hmm. one from, you know, Albania and see the grooves go out a different way. I mean, you, you can always find something interesting. If you're interested in it, you can make it interesting to other people through a collection. Why do you think, or maybe why do you know? you chose to stick to paintings in your lifetime because i couldn't look i had to have some limits right mm -hmm. <laughs> um and of the work that i like if you go back in time those things tend to be expensive for one thing <laughs> and also have to I hate to say it but there's a lot of fakes out there yeah. And I didn't want to be that person who bought a sergeant for $40,000. And I have it hanging up on my wall for 30 years. And then something happens, I want to or need to sell that sergeant. And someone comes along and says, oh, well, that's really a fake. Yeah. I didn't have the kind of money to live with that kind of risk. Sure. So when I've gotten my work, I know the artist. The, mar the artist is right there, right? Mm -hmm. Half the time I got a photograph with them, you know? <laughs> so I, well, I sleep at night saying, I know all my work is completely a thousand percent original, right? Mm -hmm. So so that was, you know, two things. Things that I like were older, were pricier, and also there's a lot of fakes. For that reason also, I didn't collect a lot of photography on the basis of the fact that if you know, if I have an oil painting, you got to come to my place to see it, or I got to lend it to you, you know, or to a museum or something mm -hmm. for anyone to really get that impression. So, I mean, I just wanted to have something special for people to see. Yeah. If you have a photograph, um, there can be infinite copies. Right. And so... 
the value of like seeing it in front of you is somewhat diminished. And I was, I was sort of shied away from it. I mean, I'll tell you a story, which maybe is an admission of guilt, but I used to work, my first job as a lawyer, um, I was working Midtown across the street from Grand Central Terminal in New York. And the company that I worked for represented the Empire State Building. And there's a very famous series of photographs by a photographer named Lewis Hine who photographed the Empire State Building when it was being built. Mm-hmm. And there's this very, very beautiful photograph of the girders of the Empire State Building going up with the Lincoln Building in the background, and that's where my office was. And I said, this is perfect. I want to hang this in my office. So I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh My friend Lorna had it. And I said, you know, can I borrow that? And she says, sure. So I took it down to the drugstore. I had it scanned and made a copy, hung it up in my my office. And I thought, (laughs) gee, you know, (laughs) do I really want to be, you know, having photography when anyone can go and just have the same thing, it wasn't for me. <clears throat> so, um, you know, there's all sorts of processes that people go through to vet an artwork, see if it's authentic or not. And I don't know what the percentage of success is, but <clears throat> anyone who looked at that copy that I made of that Lewis, Lewis Heim photograph, <clears throat> who's knowledgeable about photography is going to know instantly that it's not the original thing he didn't do it i got it from his drugstore it's with paper that didn't exist in 1933 right mm-hmm. it's not a lewis hunt but people coming into my office didn't know or care right, right yeah. it's just a good image of something that i want anyway so the first photograph i got was by a guy named um richard misrock now he is he's very very well known right now as a photographer um and i was very impressed by his vision um he did a series of photographs of just clouds in the sky which blew me away and i wanted to have one so i i i i got it but it was huge i mean it was you know really really big and i figure no one's going to go down to the drugstore with this right Mm -hmm. yeah so i I felt comfortable (laughs) having that and then over time i've gotten you know i don't know maybe a half dozen uh photographs i commissioned a few um um but anyway so there's again authenticity is a big thing with me and i want i didn't want to go to bed thinking that my half of my oh god i can tell you another story i'm not <laughs> this is um i belong to um an old private club that I'm not going to name because I'm not supposed to. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> In New York. And it is, it's a very, it's an exclusive club. All right. So there are lots of people in this club who have lots of money. Like I'm not one of them, but there are lots of people <laughs> with lots of money in this club. And um, there was a tour given by the art committee to see sculpture in New York. 
And I thought, okay, well, this sounds fun. They're going to be art-loving people on this. I was new in the club at the time. We wanted to meet people. So they're going to be art-loving people. We'll have something. It's sculpture. I'm not into sculpture. But, you know, there could be some paintings. We'll see. Yeah. So we take this tour around New York, and we're going to private collections. I think we get, they give us a tour back in, you know, backstage at Christie's and stuff like that. And it's a fascinating evening. And then the last thing we do is we go and visit this woman's townhouse. Uh, on the Upper East Side, on one of the most exclusive streets in the city. Mm -hmm. We walk in, <clears throat> and she's got a sculpture hole with niches of life-size marbles, some of which she's acquired from Queen Elizabeth's collection. Oh, my God. Oh, all right. Hold on. <laughs> Go on. Out, out, out. Okay, so she's got life-size sculptures by Canova from, that she's gotten from the Queen in niches that she's built on her ground floor, right? So we go upstairs, and we're looking at artworks which make my heart stop. She had two Canalettos. She had a Van Dyke. She had... Um, Henri Robert, very famous 19th century French artist. All these people I recognize, a lot of them have. And actually, she was, she was courted by the Metropolitan Museum to be like on their board because they wanted to you know, inherit her collection. Well, <clears throat> ultimately, this person passed away mm. and her collection was sold at either Sotheby's or Christie's for some paltry amount of money. We're talking about, you know, less than $10 million for everything. Um, I'm not saying that this, those Canova sculptures were part of that sale, but the works that were in that sale were the whole lot of them <clears throat> sold for less than you would think one would sell. Why do you think it, it sold for so little compared to where you would think it would have gone? Her family had been buying these artworks since the 19th century, okay? Holy smokes. And there were documents that she got, this one from that gallery, very reputable yeah. place, this one from that museum or whatever. Over time, the ability to authenticate what was a Rembrandt and what was not a Rembrandt just became that much more accurate. So when they take these works and they do the analyses, what her family bought in the 20s as a Rembrandt t t turns to be school of Rembrandt. Mm. Ah, I see. So the value goes down by 90%. Gosh, that's crazy. She, you know, this was so shocking to me. Um, of course, she died without knowing it, right? <laughs> That's the way to go. You know? Yeah. But that was quite a story. Listen, if you were doing it now, you have all these scientific investigatory tools to assure you that your Rembrandt is a Rembrandt. Mm -hmm. But over, you know, over... A hundred years, no one had it. 
So, I mean, that just goes to say I was happy getting something from the art. The guy is there, right? I'm in his studio. I'm right. taking it home from his studio, yeah. right? Or he shows up at the opening at this gallery. I'm shaking his hand and I'm buying his work and I'm supporting him and I'm supporting the gallery and I'm getting something at a reasonable price because he's a living artist who's maybe 30 years old. Yeah, no, it's, it makes a lot of sense. And I mean, from an, um, an authenticating stamp, I guess that's what you would authenticate that the painting. I mean, I guess now you're saying that, I mean, what <clears throat> level of certainty do you think there is around the ability for people to authenticate paintings now? Uh, the, um, <clears throat> there's a very, very high, maybe that's an exaggeration. Um, all I'm saying is that it is a lot, lot easier to tell yeah. a fake now than it would have been sure. 30 oh, years ago, 40 years ago. I'm not necessarily going to tell you that it's the real thing, but if it's a fake, it's going to yeah. show up. And let me recommend this show to you in case you've never heard of it. Have you ever heard of Fake or Fortune? I don't think I have. Let me Google it real fast. Fake or Fortune. Fake or Fortune has been produced by the BBC for a number of years. And they do maybe four or five of them a year. What they do is they're going to have a person who has an artwork that they think is like a Renoir or um, mm -hmm. a Chagall or something like that. And they want to sell it for, for some reason, either they just found it in a, in a, um, in a country auction or at a, uh, a, a garage sale or something. And they think it's something authentic. They want to know, or it's been hanging in the family, you know, country house for 150 years and someone needs an operation. They got to sell this thing, but they have to have it authenticated. So they, in the hour of the show, they check in three different ways. They look, they do a scientific investigation. They'll take chips of paint and they'll do x-rays. They do that. They do a documentary investigation to see, has the picture been... Um, reproduced in magazines was it in auctions to try to track the provenance of the of the picture back to the artist to the best of their ability mm -hmm. and then they also do a social search they talk to people who may have known the artist or may have known the person who bought it or went to school with the artist or or the grandfather i mean the grandson of of the artist or the person who would they you know they ask people around what do they think of it and then they come up with a report and they give this report to whoever the gatekeepers are for that particular artist. Cause there's a panel somewhere that's going to say yes or no, this is a real Picasso. This is a real Rembrandt, Rembrandt or it's not. And mm -hmm. then they, they try to see whether they get, they get this panel to authenticate it. And if they can, then whoop de do It's a fortune. Yeah. If they absolutely. can for $300. You know? <laughs> This show is so fascinating to me, and they they do such a wonderful job um, in in producing the television shows. Um, I, I just find them fascinating. So you can get a number of them on YouTube. Oh, okay. Yeah. If you if you're on, I think it's like Amazon Prime. They probably have 
episodes there, but they didn't do all that much of them. It's only maybe, it's just saying like three or four a year, maybe five a year for the past five or six years. I've seen every single one. Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I, you know, I didn't even know fake art was such a big deal. And I watched the Netflix show, uh, Made You Look, I think. And mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of interesting. I don't know. I just, I don't know, some gallery, I think in New York, they just had a ton of fake art. And, you know, they just kept accepting it. So. Right. Well, you know, there are brigands out there. I mean, there are, there are crooks. Yeah. Who, you know, there are crooks who want to make a buck off of credulous people. And I swear to God, I just was not going to be one of those credulous people. So <laughs> contemporary art is the way to go. Let me, let me ask you one more question. I want to go back to that point that you talked about the parents not passing down the love of the collection, I guess, to their kids. And just from your perspective, you know, in the art world, I mean, do you see that as something that you're trying to do is to, uh, I guess, progress the idea, progress, but um, share the, the love of, of collecting art and, and um, you know, why, why and how to collect? Um, I actually did and have had the objective of opening up people's eyes to the fact that there actually are people who can paint out there. Because mm. I, with all of my like New York sophistication and everything, and having been to art school, had no idea that there was this underground of artists who were painting realistically. And they weren't just doing pop art or op or minimalism, conceptualism, Dadaism, whatever it is, these people were out there all mm. the time because they believed in it and because that's what meant something to them. So since I didn't figure that out, I figure if I can promote it, I can help people who would like to be part of that mm -hmm. um, and form that. And, 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 and again, of course, help the artist to survive. Um, when I started collecting, it was hard to find. It was hard to find galleries that were showing representational work. It was hard to find artists who were doing it. But then I will, I will tell you that over the past 30 years, um, there's lots more of it. Lots more. Um, and I think probably one of the issues today is to find someone who not only has the skill because there are several excellent art academies just in New York specializing in realistic painting mm -hmm. um, and, and students just loving to go and do it. But the challenge now is to find someone whose work is so good and so distinct that it's different from everyone else's and you can look at it and say, oh yes, that's a John Doe painting. Nobody else can do what he does. Back to that original premise I had, that is if you can paint a still life that looks like nobody else's still right. life, then you're the great artist. And so that's what, that's the challenge right now, I think, if you're collecting realism. Ah, that's interesting. And have you found, I guess, fulfillment in, in, in pushing that? Not, not, not pushing, that's the wrong word, but in sharing that love and, and passion for, for collecting as well as the art? Well, you know, I am not sure. I mean, look, I'm just one person. I don't have a TV show. I don't have a gallery. Mm -hmm. um, I don't write a column in a magazine or anything like that. 
So I'm just one person. And all I can say is that the discovery that I made back in the late 80s certainly has been shared by a lot of other people. Because the fact that there's so much more of it going on now than there used to be, that that says something. I mean, my collection really kind of started out as a contrarian collection. Hmm. You know, it was an anti-mainstream collection. Now, if I'd been born in 1920 and I was like, you know, overwhelmed by all of this academic stuff, I might have been the person going for the pop art. I might have been the person going for the, you know, op art or something like that. I might have wanted something fresh and new and a departure from what my grandfather would have done. But um, I was I was rebelling, yeah. In doing in doing in getting a traditional looking new <laughs> still life painting, and some people thought I was crazy. But you know what? That's you know, it's personal to me. I mean, really, I think you know you got to make yourself happy in life. Uh, you, you just have have to look to yourself. Um, Let me ask you one. I know I said last one, but let me ask you one more. The internet, it's been amazing, obviously. Done great things, obviously. And, you know, you can connect. I'm sure it's helped build a lot of of, uh, recognition about different things. Mm -hmm. You know, you talked about, you know, collecting since the 80s. Do you think there's something that we've lost in, in the collecting world, in the art world, because of the internet? Or do you think there's something that the internet's done that has been a neg a net negative you know for art collecting wow that's a big question <laughs> you know when because when i started collecting there was no internet mm-hmm. um <laughs> yeah i mean i could tell you all sorts of stories of the lengths i had to go through to try to actually meet an artist in person because the galleries didn't want that to happen Ah, okay. And now they can't help it from happening because every artist has his own website. They had like restricted access. You know, the galleries were the gatekeepers. Exactly. Exactly. They didn't want you, you know, meeting an artist and undercutting them, right? Mm-hmm, right. Um I have bought directly from artists on many, many occasions. Mm-hmm. However, I realize that if I'm going to um, buy directly from an artist and undercut gallery, it's like shooting myself in the foot because the galleries out there to promote the artist and make them famous and attract the people who like that kind of work so that the price goes up, Mm. you know, so that their fame is increased. And it's very expensive to do that. So, the times when I bought directly from an artist have been times when um, that artist is between galleries, right? Mm, yeah. It happens all the time. Galleries come and galleries go. Someone's got 20 paintings they had in, in a gallery. They were selling for X number of dollars, of which the artist is going to see 50% of it, mm-hmm. which is totally justified when you know how much it costs to run a gallery. Um, but if that gallery closes, the guy can't sell anything. He doesn't have another gallery. And he knows I'm sitting out there 
loving his work, well, then he'll make me an offer. Well, I'm not going to turn it down. I'm not undercutting the gallery that isn't there. Right. Yeah. You know? But on the other hand, I've taken artists to galleries and made them, you know, mm. artists of that gallery because the because the work was so good. Right. So I'm helping the gallery every time I possibly can. When I've had, you know, artists I really love, and as I say, I couldn't afford them. I bring somebody else around who's got more money than I who had <laughs> Yeah. So I'm I'm trying to be a good citizen and um you know, uh, a proponent, you know, a, 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 a supporter of everybody. Sure. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for this, Gregory. It was absolutely amazing, you know, to hear your stories, to hear your perspective on art collecting. And I know you, you have a book about to come out. Can you tell us? Oh, right, about right, that? right. Yeah. Let me share this. Um, if anyone's interested in what New York was like during the lockdown, which happened a couple of years ago, a lot of big, grand open spaces with no one in them. I have a book of my photography, uh, which illustrates that. Um, so if you wonder what New York was like, this is Lincoln Center. I'm oh, sorry, this is Rockefeller Center um, skating rink. Uh, something that you didn't see. Uh, if you want to have that feeling, that moment of time when everyone was locked down and um, there you go. There's up on the screen one of your photos, I believe. From oh, the, thank you. From thank you very much. Yeah. Yep. That's Fifth Avenue at something like six o'clock at night on a weekday with uh, no one there. And that's what it's like all around town. Anyway, so my book, New York Still Life, is available on uh, Amazon and at your favorite bookseller. Uh, all right. I'm actually, I really think it's pretty interesting. You know, so there's a, uh, I pulled up some photos. There's a YouTube video. I'll link it down below for everybody to go check it out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting to think. I mean, I assume all these people, all these places are usually just completely packed and totally just, packed. You'll see yeah. in the book. You'll see Grand Central Terminal with no one. You'll see Times Square with no one, no one, no one. <clears throat> a New Yorker's flip. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it's pretty. Pretty interesting. And it's, I don't know, it's pretty interesting that you thought to kind of, to capture that, you know, the stark difference that COVID created. Yeah. Well, it was something I'd never seen before. And I thought, well, if I've never seen it, I may never see it again. Right. So I thought I'd better get these pictures in a couple of weeks before it's all over. Of course, it took, you know, like a year. <laughs> <laughs> you had more time than you thought, but right. uh, we'll look back and it won't look like that much time. Dakota, thank you so much. It's just been a wonderful opportunity to speak with you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on. I mean, I really do, uh, you know, appreciate it just to get cold called and be willing to do this. I, I really do appreciate it. I think it's a great discussion. Terrific.